Welcome to the July 22, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we will learn more about the use of high-dose post-transplant cyclophosphamide in matched unrelated donors versus HLA haploidentical grafts. Review prognostic factors and outcomes from the largest cohort of patients with angioimmunoblastic T-cell lymphoma reported to date, and look at a study that suggests that high molecular weight kininogen contributes to acetaminophen-induced liver injury. Our first topic is a study entitled HLA haploidentical versus matched unrelated donor transplants with post-transplant cyclophosphamide-based prophylaxis by Mahasweta Guptu from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and colleagues. While allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplantation remains an important curative option for hematologic malignancies, an HLA-matched sibling or unrelated donor is not always readily available particularly for ethnic minorities and multi-ethnic families. This had led to the expansion of the donor pool to include alternative donor sources, such as HLA haploidentical relatives, HLA-matched unrelated donors, or MUD, and HLA-matched or mismatched cord blood. Post-transplantation cyclophosphamide, or PTCI, containing graft-versus-host disease, or GVHD, prophylaxis, pioneered by Johns Hopkins, has revolutionized haplotransplants with results similar to that after MUD transplantation with traditional prophylaxis, including a calcineurin inhibitor and methotrexate. The relative value of transplantation with MUD versus haplodonors, when both groups receive GVHD prophylaxis containing PTCI, a calcineurin inhibitor, and mycophenolate, is not known. In this report, Guptu and colleagues performed an observational study using data reported to the Center for International Blood and Marrow Transplant, or CIBMTR. They compared outcomes after 2,036 haplo and 284 MUD transplants with PTCI-based GVHD prophylaxis for acute myeloid leukemia, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or myelodysplastic syndrome in adults from 111 centers in the U.S. between 2011 and 2018. Recipients of myeloablative and reduced-intensity regimens were analyzed separately. Among recipients of reduced-intensity regimens, rates of two-year graft failure, acute grade 2 to 4 and grade 3 to 4 GVHD, and non-relapse mortality were significantly lower after MUD compared to haplotransplantation. These findings translated into significantly higher rates of disease-free survival and overall survival after MUD compared to haplotransplants, with respective hazard ratios of 0.65 and 0.74. Among recipients of myeloablative regimens, day 100 platelet recovery was higher, and grade 3 to 4 acute and chronic GVHD rates were lower after MUD compared to haplotransplantation. However, there were no differences in graft failure, relapse, non-relapse mortality, disease-free, and overall survival between donor types with myeloablative conditioning regimens. These data extend and corroborate the importance of donor-recipient HLA matching for allogeneic transplantation, with MUD being the preferred donor, 
especially for transplantation with reduced-intensity conditioning regimens. The authors note that ideally, studies should be designed to identify an optimal donor for transplant in a randomized fashion, but logistical considerations to achieve this would be formidable. They acknowledge that a limitation of their study is the observational nature of the data. Nevertheless, this is the first study in which both HAPLO and MUD recipients received uniform GVHD prophylaxis and were studied separately based on the intensity of the transplant conditioning regimen. While HAPLO and MUD transplants have historically not shown differences in non-relapse mortality, relapse, as well as disease-free or overall survival, these data have been confounded by different conditioning regimen intensities, graft type, and GVHD prophylaxis for each donor type. In an accompanying commentary, Andrea Basigolupo from Fondazione Policlinico Universitario Gemelli in Rome, Italy, points out that the role of PTSI in HLA-identical transplants is rapidly expanding due to better control of GVHD compared to conventional calcineurin inhibitor and methotrexate GVHD prophylaxis. For malignant diseases, prospective randomized trials will be needed to assess whether a significant reduction of acute and chronic GVHD will come with an increased risk of relapse. Conversely, in non-malignant disease, where relapse is not a problem, triple or quadruple PTSI-based prophylaxis, including use of antithymocyte globulin, is becoming very popular. The PTSI revolution in haplotransplants is now moving to HLA-identical transplants and may well become a standard of care. Our next manuscript is a report entitled Outcomes and Prognostic Factors in Angioimmunoblastic T-Cell Lymphoma, Final Report from the International T-Cell Project, by Ranjana Advani from Stanford University in California and colleagues. Angioimmunoblastic T-Cell Lymphoma, or AITL, accounts for approximately 15 to 20 percent of peripheral T-cell lymphoma. It possesses distinct clinicopathologic features and a poor prognosis. AITL is generally a disease of older adults with a median age at diagnosis of approximately 65 years and is typically characterized by an aggressive course with progressive lymphadenopathy, hepatosplenomegaly, constitutional symptoms, anemia, and hypergammaglobulinemia. AITL is characterized by a clonal T-cell infiltrate along with prominent neovascularization. The neoplastic cells express pan-T-cell antigens, including CD2, CD3, and CD5, and typically express CD4. The cell of origin of AITL has been identified as a T-follicular helper cell. Secondary B-cell proliferations are common in AITL and are often positive for Epstein-Barr virus. In this study, Advani and colleagues retrospectively evaluated outcomes of 282 patients with AITL who were registered in the T-cell project between 2006 and 2018, an international prospective cohort study in patients with mature T-cell and NK-cell lymphomas. Primary and secondary endpoints were five-year overall survival and progression-free survival, respectively. The project investigators analyzed the prognostic impact of clinical covariates and progression of disease within 24 months and developed a novel prognostic score. The median age was 64 years, 
and 90% of patients had advanced stage disease. 81% received anthracycline-based regimens, and 13% underwent consolidative autologous stem cell transplantation in first complete remission. For patients receiving chemotherapy regimens with and without etoposide, the five-year overall survival estimates were 50% and 43%, respectively. There was no difference in overall and progression-free survival for patients treated in 2006 to 2010, prior to the FDA approval of romadepsin, compared to 2011 to 2018 when newer agents emerged. With a median follow-up of 58 months, five-year overall survival and progression-free survival estimates were 44% and 32%, respectively, for the entire cohort. Improved outcomes were observed for patients who underwent autologous stem cell transplantation in first complete remission compared to transplant-eligible patients who did not undergo the procedure, with five-year survival estimates of 89% versus 52%, respectively. In multivariate analysis, patients 60 years of age or more, ECOG performance status of more than 2, elevated C-reactive protein, and elevated beta-2 microglobulin were associated with inferior outcomes. A novel prognostic AITL score combining these factors defined low, intermediate, and high-risk subgroups, with 5-year overall survival estimates of 63%, 54%, and 21%, respectively. This score exhibited greater discriminant power than established prognostic indices. In conclusion, the authors demonstrated that in this large international retrospective study, outcomes remained suboptimal for these patients, with particularly poor outcomes for high-risk patients and for those experiencing progression of disease within 24 months. Additionally, progression of disease within 24 months was a powerful prognostic factor with five-year overall survival of 63% for patients without progression of disease within 24 months, compared to only 6% for patients with progression of disease within 24 months. These data will require validation in a prospective cohort of homogeneously treated patients. Amanda McBride and Pierre-Luigi Porcu from Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, provide an interesting perspective on this study in their commentary entitled the rise of a new great teacher. They remind us of Joe Connor's contribution to the field of oncology 10 years ago when he aptly identified Hodgkin lymphoma as the great teacher in oncology. They go on to reference the lessons or learning opportunities presented with landmark observations and studies in the field of T-cell lymphoma and how these lessons have helped build a framework that sheds light on the perplexing manifestations of AITL. In addition to identifying progression of disease within 24 months as a powerful discriminator of two subgroups with vastly different survival outcomes, the findings also present a new prognostic AITL score that includes inflammatory biomarkers and shows improved prognostication over prior risk stratification systems. The study of AITL has already produced many discoveries spanning genetics, epigenetics, and immunology. Optimal treatment of AITL continues to be an unmet need, and a better understanding of the disease biology and determinants of outcome, such as identified in this study, are necessary to improve prognosis. Our final topic today is a study entitled 
plasmin-mediated cleavage of high molecular weight kininogen contributes to acetaminophen-induced acute liver failure by Michael Henderson from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and colleagues. By way of background, the contact system involves three serine proteases, coagulation factors 12, 11, and plasma precalicrine, as well as the non-enzymatic cofactor high molecular weight kininogen, or HK. This system is a plasma protease cascade initiated by activation of factor 12, which then triggers the intrinsic coagulation pathway, stimulates pro-inflammatory responses, and generates the vasodilator bradykinin. While this pathway's role in health and disease is, to some extent, shrouded in mystery, this report identifies a novel function of the contact system in drug-induced systemic inflammation and tissue damage. Acetaminophen overdose is the leading cause of drug-induced liver failure and is responsible for more than 78,000 emergency room visits annually in the U.S. Hepatocellular injury is initiated when excessive acetaminophen is metabolized by cytochrome P450 enzymes into the reactive intermediate N-acetyl-P-benzoquinone imine that generates protein adducts leading to oxidative stress and mitochondrial dysfunction. Permeabilization of the mitochondrial membrane and secession of ATP synthesis ultimately results in hepatocyte death that can progress to acute liver failure. Additionally, it is associated with the activation of coagulation and fibrinolysis. In mice, both tissue factor-dependent thrombin generation and plasmin activity have been shown to promote liver injury after acetaminophen overdose. However, the contribution of the contact and intrinsic coagulation pathways has not been investigated in these models. In the current study, mice deficient in individual factors of the contact pathway were administered a hepatotoxic dose of 400 mg per kilogram of acetaminophen. Neither factor 12, factor 11, nor precalicrine deficiency mitigated coagulation activation or hepatocellular injury. Interestingly, despite the lack of significant changes to acetaminophen-induced coagulation activation, markers of liver injury and inflammation were significantly reduced in acetaminophen-challenged mice deficient in HK, while protective effects of HK deficiency failed to be reproduced by inhibition of bradykinin-mediated signaling. Reconstitution of circulating levels of HK in HK-deficient mice restored hepatotoxicity. Fibrinolysis activation was observed in mice after acetaminophen administration. Different methods, including Western blotting, ELISA, and mass spectrometry, revealed that plasmin efficiently cleaves HK into multiple fragments in buffer or plasma. Notably, plasminogen deficiency attenuated acetaminophen-induced liver injury and prevented HK cleavage in the injured liver. In addition, enhanced plasmin generation and HK cleavage in the absence of contact pathway activation, were observed in the plasma of patients with acute liver failure due to acetaminophen overdose. In summary, the authors found that extrinsic, but not intrinsic, pathway activation drives the thromboinflammatory pathology associated with acetaminophen-induced liver injury in mice. Furthermore, plasmin-mediated cleavage of HK represents a novel pathway mediating hepatotoxicity in acetaminophen-challenged mice, which is independent of other components of the contact system, such as factors 12, 11, and precalicrine. In the accompanying commentary, 
Yi Wu from Temple University in Philadelphia cites the persuasive data supporting the pivotal role of cleaved HK in liver injury instigated by acetaminophen overdose. Wu also raises several questions for future investigation. For example, the mechanisms by which acetaminophen overdose induces plasmin activation are not clear, as well as the specific plasmin-cleaved fragments of HK that are responsible for liver injury. It is also unknown whether low molecular weight kininogen contributes to acetaminophen hepatotoxicity, as other enzymes besides plasmin, such as neutrophil protease 3, cathepsins, calpane, and elastase, can also cleave HK. It will be of interest to model deletion of these genes to better understand what role, if any, they have in acetaminophen-induced liver damage. As Wu reminds us, a better understanding of how acetaminophen overdose induces the activation of plasmin and the cleavage of HK will aid in the development of novel antidotes for this condition. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.